there was a, a time when I was working in the oil business that we moved into a new area and thought we would try to drill some wells, some wells that we hoped would be oil wells. Hopefully that would be the outcome of the wells. And we knew that there was some risk there always is in the oil business when you go out to drill a well in a new area. So we realized we might drill a well and that might fail and maybe we'd try a second one, maybe even a third. But at some point we just count our losses and then move on from there. So we knew there was a downside to it. So we went in, we drilled our first well and it was an oil producer, produced a decent amount of oil. So we drilled a second and produced well also. We drilled a third and it also produced. So we, we ramped up everything and we got more rigs out, began to drill rapidly to develop this out. And then the, the worst of the worst case scenarios happened. The initial wells that were producing so well suddenly quit producing. And then uh, sub- subsequently the following wells did as well. And so now by this time we had spent a bunch of money, not enough money for one or two or three wells. We'd spent a ton of money and it was all lost. The problem was much, much worse than we imagined it would be. The loss was much greater than we thought it would be. But there was this little group of engineers in the company that decided to pursue an idea that had never been accomplished in the oil business before. Normally, a well is drilled vertically through a zone. So a producing zone, maybe, maybe it's 50 feet thick at best or maybe 100 feet thick. And, but they began to experiment with something that uh, another company was trying but not successfully, decided to, to drill down to the zone and then turn the drill bit and drill horizontally a long distance through the producing zone. So rather than having a, like a well opening for 50 feet or 100 feet, it would be hundreds and eventually thousands of feet. Never been done before to produce wells. So they tried it and took a little bit of practice to fine-tune it, but it became this, this phenomenal success. Uh, I mean, so much so we were already the, the largest independent energy company in America, but, but it blew the roof off our stock. Our stock doubled in price because of this one technology in this one field. At what looked like it had gone so bad, and it had, that the losses were more than we ever dreamed, suddenly had become some of the biggest gains we'd ever had. But we never figured out how to, to translate that beyond that field. We made a ton of money. We never figured that out. But a couple other companies did. As it turned out, we had the first piece of a two-piece puzzle. We got the horizontal drilling part down through a zone. They added the fracking to it. And, and they began to apply to what everyone knew was present, uh, these shale formations with trillions of barrels of oil in the U.S. alone. They began to drill horizontally and frack them, which became the shale oil boom that you guys are probably familiar with. What it's done is it took, it took the U.S. oil production from 40 years of decline to this sudden rapid increase to double the production in America, which flooded the oil markets which decreased the price of your gasoline, which you're happy about unless you worked in the oil business because the oil price came down. It decreased the price of gasoline, decreased the price of energy, which stirred the economy, which created jobs. And I found my, and now, of course, uh, the worldwide reserves and production potential is beyond. It's the biggest thing in 50 years. I found myself thinking back, there was this point in the process where, where it was, the problem was much worse than we imagined it was. But it turned out the solution was far better, far beyond our wildest dreams. The second chapter of Ephesians says that's true of every person who draws breath. There's a problem that's much worse than probably any one of us in this room understands. But the solution is far better, far beyond our wildest dreams. And so this is where I'm going. I'm going to open with 
Ephesians 2 in a moment. And just to prepare you for it, the first three verses, they are really, really crushing. And so as I'm talking through those, like, show me you're being crushed. Because if you don't, I'll just make it worse and worse and worse. I'll give you the whole barrel. So, so show me, like, this is depressing. But, but keep in mind that somewhere through there, we hit verse 4. Somewhere there's this turn. And things go through the roof with just the grandeur and gifts of God. So keep that in mind. So, so I say that because if you find yourself a few minutes in and you're thinking, this is bad news, why did I come? <laughs> You'll find out because it all is going to turn. Background, we were in Ephesians 1 last week, and the essence is we said this is, this is the heart of God toward mankind. And, and he's writing, Paul's writing, inspired by the Spirit, to Christ's followers. And he's saying before the world began... God loved you. Before it ever began, he loved you. And he made plans to forgive you so you would be holy and without fault in his eyes. He made plans to adopt you before the world ever began. And he gave him great pleasure to do that. It wasn't just a nice check mark or I ought to do it or that'd be a cool thing. It gave him great pleasure to do that. And I said last week, if you were following Jesus, all of that, it reads directly to you. Directly to you. That was God's heart before the world began. But I also said last week, if you weren't yet a follower of Jesus... If you had not begun to trust your life to him, all of that could become true for you. In the moment of trusting Christ, it could become true for you. And so that was the, that's where we got to last week. So I want to begin then in, in Ephesians 2, verse 1. It begins to speak about the predicament of each man and woman. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So he's writing to Christians, so he's writing past tense. There was a time you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else was. So it begins by saying, right off the bat, it says... That we were dead. It, of course, it doesn't mean, because he's writing to people that are still breathing, but he's saying you were dead spiritually. Before you trusted Christ, you were dead spiritually. You had no connection to the living God. The source of all life, you were cut off from. You were dead. Why? Because of your sin. Because of the sin in your life. And just to pull back for a moment, I found this is so helpful to touch upon from time to time so we know what sin is. It's, it's simply the label that God puts on everything that damages and destroys. It's simply the label God puts on everything that damages and destroys. In other words, God didn't arbitrarily just say, well, let's just make that a sin and make that a sin. And that one looks like it'd be a lot of fun, so I'll make that a sin. <laughs> it's not that at all. I mean, God looked at, he, he looked at everything that would exist, every thought, every behavior, and every single one that would damage and destroy. He put this label on it out of love. And he labeled it a sin. So you and I could look at it Anything that God labels sin, there's just massive warning lights should go off. That's going to cause damage. That's going to destroy. So, so this is opening saying that we were dead to God because of the sin in our life. We were dead to him. And then it says in verse 2, it says you used to live in sin. If you were here last week, I talked about living in the Bay Area. A lot of us do live in the Bay Area. And I said we're influenced by the environment of the Bay Area. We're influenced by the climate and 
by the culture and by the current events, by the economy, and on and on. We're influenced by the, this environment of the Bay Area because we live in the Bay Area. But then last week I talked about what Paul says 36 times in this one little book, that if we begin to follow Jesus, we live in Christ, which means he becomes our primary environment. His reality is so real and so profound that he is the most powerful, most profound, most lasting environment we'll ever find. And the intention is that he affect us more than anything else of any other environment. He be the environment that impacts us most to live in Christ. Well, now Paul's saying, before you trusted Christ, so some of you here have trusted Christ, think back. Some of you haven't yet, so, so this would be you now. He's saying we, we lived in sin. We, that was the environment. Sin was the environment that influenced our life most. We lived in sin. And then verse 2 is is the most uh, unsettling, upsetting, horrific part of all this, if you get it. It says, um, you still live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God, and all of us were that way. Saying, you used to obey Satan. You used to obey Satan, He was the one working in your hearts and stirring and directing your hearts. He was the one in you, and all of us used to live that way. I don't know about you, but the first 30 years of my life, I wasn't trusting Jesus, and I never once thought, I never once realized I was obeying Satan every turn. I never realized that that the spirit of him was at work in my spirit, my heart. I never knew that. I thought I was just making up my life as I went. I thought I was the one in charge. I thought I was the final answer. And that's not what this says. Do you read it here? Do you see it? He's saying this is true about all of us before we trust Jesus. It says we, we were obeying Satan. He was deeply at work in our hearts. So this is, this is the theology wrapped up in this. And, and if this doesn't cause your shoulders to sag, I'm going to keep talking on this until your shoulders sag. Okay, this is bad stuff. If we don't obey God... We're obeying Satan. That's the default. There's no other option. We obey God or we obey Satan. We either serve God or we serve Satan. We either are surrendered to God or we're surrendered to Satan. Again, that's the default position. We either own by God or we're owned by Satan. We either live in Christ or we live in Satan. Either Christ is the environment of influence or Satan's the environment of influence. If we're not a child of God, then we're a pawn of Satan. If we're dead to God, then we're very much alive to Satan. All of us used to live that way, writing to Christians. All of us in this room who've trusted Christ, we used to live that way. That was our reality. Everyone in this room who is yet to trust Christ, that is your current reality. You probably didn't realize that. You probably didn't feel that. You probably thought you were just, you were running the ship. It says you're not. There are only two people that run the ship of someone's life. It's either God or Satan. That is, that is alarming truth, friends. I mean, that, is, that is a scary, frightening scenario. Because Satan is pure evil. He is pure evil. Jesus would say in John 10, 10, speaking of Satan, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. So apart from Jesus then, he owns us. And his whole plan is to steal from your life and to kill you and destroy you. That's his plan. He's the one that owns you. 
He's the one that's alive in you. It's, just, it's scary, scary, frightening stuff. Again, if you're one who trusts Christ now, like think back to what it was. Maybe you never knew that, but think back to what it was because you'll never fully celebrate what is unless you know what was. We come to grips with that. That was what your life was. It's what my life was. If you haven't trusted Jesus yet, then get your mind wrapped around this is the reality in which you live. This is the reality in which you live. But verse 4 comes along and says, but God. It says, it, right before that, it says, you know, we were subject to God's anger. God has the right to be angry at, at sin and evil, doesn't he? Don't you get angry at evil? Your destruction and damage and death, don't you get mad? God is angry at that. We've aligned ourselves before Jesus, aligned ourselves with sin and destruction. We're subject of his anger. Verse 4 says, but God. Those are two of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. And you'll find them dozens and dozens of times. And every single time the, before you see those words, you read about a scenario that is horrific and it's lost. I mean, it's all, all hope is gone. And then all of a sudden, there's this, but God. And everything shifts. He begins to change the entire plot line. And that's what begins here. It says, but God, so rich in mercy, he loved us so much. We deserved his anger because of all our sin. We deserve that. But God, so rich in mercy for you and me, because of his love for us that was so deep, it says, even though we were dead because of sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he's raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he's done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. But God, he's the, the pivotal point. He, he turns the entire plot line out of his mercy and love. And he's writing again to those who've trusted Jesus. And, and so he's, he's saying to them, he's talking about how this new life, it's a relationship life because he talks about being with Jesus in this. He spells out for them uh, in verse 6, he says, you were raised from the dead along with Christ in relationship with him. He seated us with Christ in heavenly realms. Relationship again, because we're united with Christ Jesus, which literally is translated in Christ Jesus. It's all about relationship. He's trying to remind everyone that breathes. His plan isn't a list of rules, a list of commandments, a list of should that we read and do. His plan is all about relationship. It only works in relationship to be with Christ. The, the final phrase is literally in Christ to say, to recognize that your environment is Jesus. He's the environment around you intended to influence you most. Which says, we're with him in the heavenly realms. I, I know I can't fully explain all that's in that, but I do know this. I do know that Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, which is about three pages further down, he says, if you've trusted Christ, now you're a citizen of heaven. So if, if you have, I have, then our citizenship is, is in heaven now. This country that we live in now, which, by the way, I'm so grateful for, as flawed and broken as we are, I thank God this is where I live on this planet. But when I trusted Christ, my citizenship shifted. The homeland became heaven. This is just the land that I'm visiting on right now. If you're a Christ follower, same for you. You're just visiting this planet right now. 
the homeland, the place where you're a citizen is heaven. And he talks about us being there with Christ now. And the only light I can shine on that is that I do know this. I do know there are times right now that I get a view of what's happening here. That's a perspective that would come from heaven. It's as though in some way God's letting me look from heaven on what's happening here. And if things are going really bad right now, this perspective of heaven reminds me that this isn't the end. This is not how the story ends. And I get encouragement and hope and uplifted by that. There's some times when I'm looking down at what's happening here and there's some struggles going on. I'm lifted up by that. There's some times I'm looking down here and I have forgotten about what matters most because I'm living right here in this planet that I'm just visiting. I thought the most important thing was the house payment or the car or on and on and on. And I forget there's a much bigger picture. So I understand a little bit about what he means. If, if you follow Jesus, then it, in some capacity, right now, while we live and breathe on this planet, some capacity, we're also with Christ in the heavenly realms. Sometimes we get a clear glimpse from that perspective. And all of this that he's talking about, he's talking to Christ followers. He said, man, my mercy my love has, has given you this relationship with Jesus. It's all because of grace. You probably, maybe you have a definition of grace. Let me give you one if you don't. Grace is unmerited favor or unearned gift. Unmerited favor, you, you can't earn it. You can't, you can't pay a high enough price to get it. You can never be good enough for it. You can never deserve it. It's unmerited favor. It's this unearned gift. And then the the pinnacle of this whole thing unfolds in verses 8 through 10. It says, God saved you by his grace. In other words, this free gift by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So no one of us, none of us can boast about it. For we're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Saying God saved us by grace when you believed. In other words, this, this free gift we could never earn, he gives to us when we believe in Christ or begin to trust in Christ or place our faith in Christ, all means the same thing. We, when we begin to place our faith in Christ. And, and profoundly between the lines, this says that we, can, we could never become good enough on our own to save ourselves from sin, from Satan, and hell. We can never become good enough. We can never try hard enough. We'll, trying will always fall short. That's why grace is necessary. Trying always falls short. Some of you know my wife, Marie. I'll tell you just a bit of her story. When I first met her and began to date her, I would introduce her around in uh, different groups, just put a like a descriptive name before her, as they began to call her Sweet Marie. And, and she was. I mean, she was so sweet, and by default, I became Sour Rick. But, so, but, but I say that because she was really, really a good person. But, but from her early years, she was raised in a church, and now she's so thankful she was raised in that church. But what she heard, what she got was, you have to get better. You have to be good. You're not good enough yet. And so she started trying at the early age, trying to be good. 
And she tried harder and harder and harder. And she, she thought, I got to try to be a better friend. Because she would recognize on and on, again and again, hey, I wasn't, wasn't the best friend. She'd try to be a better student because she wasn't the best student. And, and then she um, gets employed. And I, I need to be a great employee. And tried and tried. She marries me. And, and then she tries to be a good wife. And we have our first child. She tries to be a good mother. And it, it became overwhelming. It became crippling for her because every single turn, she realized she wasn't good enough. And she'd been trying for years. She realized that she simply wasn't good enough and became crippling to her. God says that his forgiveness of our sins, his adopting us into his family, his embracing us, us having life in Christ, it's all a gift. It's all a free gift because we can never get there trying. It's this free gift that comes through faith in Jesus. It comes through Beginning, beginning a life of trusting Jesus begins by beginning to believe, which means to begin to trust in Jesus. And the outcome is we become new people in Christ. The outcome in that moment is every sin forgiven. The outcome is that we're adopted into the very family of God. So, Marie was being crippled and crushed by this weight. October 3rd, 1984. She said, I surrender. I, I give up. I've tried for 27 and a half years. I've poured everything I have into it. And it's not enough. I, I give up. And I place my faith in your hands, Jesus. I'm going to begin a life of trusting you. I'm going to give up a life of trying. That did not work. It would never work. I'm going to begin this life of trusting you. From October 3rd, as the months began to unfold, I began to see this change in her. Um, Not in a day, not in a week, but as months two, three, four, five, and six, I began to see this growing peace within her life I'd never seen before. And this deep joy in her life I'd never seen before. And even though she quit trying, (laughs) sweet Marie got sweeter. There's <laughs> something about trusting Christ is it's not that not that we give up on becoming like him. We just quit trying on our own. We just begin to trust him as we walk through this life. I'll give you a couple things about trying versus trusting. I want to I want to be sure you have some clarity around this so you understand it. A couple of comparisons. The first is this is that trying is crippling. But trusting is life-giving. Trying is crippling. Trusting is, is life-giving. Marie, to this day, talks about Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus says, if, if you are weary and worn and broken, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my load upon you. She says, that's her story. She tried and tried and tried, and it was crippling. I saw it in her. But trusting is life-giving. Trusting pours life into us. A second comparison, trying is a solo effort. Trusting is walking with Jesus where he leaves. Trying is a solo effort. Trying is, is reading scripture or hearing from God and understanding God wants us to, to live a certain way in a given area. And it's saying, okay, I got it. I read that line. I'm going to go try to be that person. And I'm going to try to be that on my own. 
maybe it's an addiction and we're thinking, I get it. I, God doesn't want me to have the addiction. I don't want it either. So I'm just going to, I got it. I'm going to go try now. On my own, I'm going to overcome it. Maybe it's an anger issue. And you recognize it's wrecking you, it's wrecking your household, it's wrecking others as well. And you get it, you know it, you're reading scripture, don't be angry. And you say, I get it, I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to go try. Maybe it's envy. It just seems like it's into the fiber of your being and and you don't like it and you don't want it. And you understand it's not supposed to be there. So you think, I'm just going to go fix it. Maybe it's lying. You found yourself becoming a perpetual liar, and you don't even like it anymore. You don't want it anymore. You know God says, don't, don't do that, and you say, I got it. I read the line. I'm going to try really hard and fix it. But trusting is walking with Jesus where he leads. Trusting is walking with Jesus where he leads. When we get to chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians, there's a lot there about how God wants to make us more like Jesus. So trusting, if it's walking with Jesus where he leads, it would, be, it would be listening and reading and hearing and walking with him and see where he leads you in, in that chapter that you're in. He may lead you to one verse, one line. And he'll say, okay, now, now we're going to walk together on that one. The addiction, we're going to walk through that one, you and me. He'd say, I, I'm the powerhouse. You just latch on, walk with me in this one. The anger, the envy, the lion, whatever it may be. As you're walking through, as you're walking with Jesus, walk with him where he leads. Don't try to fix stuff on your own. We can't. We don't have the power to do that. Trusting is walking with Jesus where he leads. You see, the truth of this passage is we were far worse off than we realized. I'm speaking to Christ followers, but if you're not a Christ follower right now, then you are far worse off than you likely realize coming in. But God's solution is far better, far beyond anything we could ever imagine or dream. His solution of grace through faith, of grace through trusting, is far beyond anything we could ever have imagined. So I want to ask you to ponder where you're at right now. And if you're one of the ones who, who came in not having trusted Christ... I hope you're gripped by the reality. I hope you know you're not making up your life as you go. You're not the captain. You're obeying Satan, the one that wants to destroy you. And he's at work in your spirit. But God says, out of my mercy and love, my son died on a cross. How more radical could you get than that? And rose from the dead so you could begin to trust him. This is the moment you begin to trust then, all sins forgiven, holy and without fault in his eyes, adopted into the family of God. You become his, his much-loved son, much-loved daughter. And you're given this brand-new life. It says here you become his masterpiece. And all he calls you to do is walk with Jesus where he leads, and that will change everything. If that's you, today's a pretty good day to do that. He's a pretty good day to do that. To say, I've been trying. I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to begin a life of trusting in Jesus. I want to just walk with him where he leads. A lot of us have trusted Christ in here, and probably all of us have been prone to fall back on trying all over again. We know it's grace, 
We understand that it's only by Christ's death and resurrection. We know we can never earn it, but now we, we see something, we hear something, we recognize there's, there's a sin someplace, there's something that's not Christ-like, and we, we note it, and we go try to fix it. We've probably all done that. Maybe you're doing that now. And I would say to you, get a fresh grip on grace again and understand the power of it, the, the life-giving experience of it. And recognize it means walking with Jesus where he leads. You're a Christ follower. You live in Christ. He's the environment that surrounds you. He's the most real, most lasting, most powerful environment you have. Just walk with him where he leads. When he points out something to you to change, it'll be the time. And he won't say, okay, now go off and fix it and then come back and tell me when you're done. Say, walk with me. Like, walk with me. I will give you the power my power this to be changed. Is that you? Is that you then? Let me pray wherever you're at. Not yet Christ follower. Pray your own prayers, I pray. Christ follower, same. Wherever you're at, pray. Father in heaven, I pray we would be gripped. First by the reality of how, how bad off all of us were or are apart from Jesus. Would you help us understand how horrific that condition is? How frightening that condition is? Help us understand that. And Father, for the ones here who came in not having begun a life trusting Jesus, I'm, I'm praying now that you will be convincing them that this is the beginning of the life they were made for, they didn't even know they desired. And I pray that they will authentically say, Jesus, I know it's, it's grace. I know it's something I can't earn. I know I can never get there by trying, so I'll quit trying. But I want to begin trusting you. I want to trust you to forgive me. I want to trust you to lead me. In other words, I want to walk with you wherever you lead me. Father, when, when a person does that, truly, truly, they've become a brand new person. In that instant, a new person has begun. A new life has begun. Father, those of us that have begun that life already, but, but we let ourselves slip back into trying, encourage us, and lift our hopes and spirits around, around the change that can come now as Jesus leads. It'd be what he wants and when he wants and through his power. Encourage us about that. Give us great hope in that. And help us get our minds centered again that we have one role. It's not trying, but it's trusting which means just walking with Jesus where he leads. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you were one who uh, trusted Christ today, I would ask you, if you would, text the word LIFE to the number 63566. Text the word LIFE to 63566. We can contact you and, and celebrate with you and give you um, walk with you in the days ahead, weeks ahead, months ahead. We'd love to do that. If you trusted Christ, tell someone today. And, and then for all of us in this room, and this would apply for anyone who's trusted Christ or anyone who deeply yearns to trust Christ, we're going to celebrate communion today. And, and that won't be the end of the service because after communion, I have an announcement you won't want to miss, but we're going to celebrate communion. Before I walk through what communion means, I give you a couple of logistics. If you're new with us, we'll have servers all across the, the front here. The server at that far end to my far right, your far left, will be gluten-free Everyone else would be just regular bread all across the front. If you're on the floor, sitting on the floor, 
if you would move down the road this direction from wherever you are, come down the aisle on that side, go back up the other way. It just makes the logistics easier. If you're in the risers, as many of you are, there'll be servers right in front of you as well. So you can come down. When you come down, uh, the person will, will break a piece of bread off the loaf and, and hand it to you, and you can dip it into the blood red cup and, and then take the communion and go back. This is the significance of it. This is the celebration of it. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, gave thanks to his Father in heaven, and he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat this. And then he took the blood red cup. He gave thanks to his Father in heaven and said, this is my bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins of many. Drink this often and remember me. Friends, this is a day to take this with massive celebration. This is a day to think of how bad it was, but God. And to think of how good it is beyond what we can ever even imagine. This is a day of celebration. And so um, let me say a, a brief prayer, and then just whenever you're ready, then come down and celebrate this. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Uh, May our hearts be filled with gratitude and joy and celebration because you didn't leave us where we were. You put that phrase in there, but God, and it all changes. Thank you for that. We celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen.